Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome, dear listener. This is Zach, and today we have something kind of special. We have a replay from my previous Keyforge show, Call of Discovery, which I co-hosted with the incomparable Ed Pocock. This episode that we're bringing back is about the battle line and positioning creatures in a battle line in a way that matters. Now, perhaps how you position things in a battle line won't win you a game on its own, but it's part of an important series of decisions you make, especially in response to what your opponent has, that might help push you over the edge. And George, as a two-time Vault Tour winner, uh, even when this was recorded two and a half years ago, has a lot of wisdom and insight to share into this, and having re-listened to it, it's still a very, very relevant topic, and it's a whole lot of concepts and best practices that still hold up today, even through winds of exchange. So I'm excited to present this to you again. Many of you, may, maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. It's probably been a long time since you have, and so it is absolutely worth the time. We're going to skip the first half of the episode where we discuss uh, George Cagle's Keyforge background, how he got into it. That's about the first 18 minutes or so. If you want to go back and check that out, that is over on the Call of Discovery feed, which is, of course, still up. And that is episode uh, 61 from early 2021. So you're going to hear Ed on this episode. You'll hear me. You'll hear George. George was an amazing guest, and it was one of the topics that has just lasted the test of time. So huge compliments to George for that. And without further ado, this is an episode of KPR and also Call of Discovery. See you on the other side. Welcome to Keyforge Public Radio with your host, Zach Armstrong. So uh, without further ado, we're going to jump into our topic today, uh, which we uh, talked with uh, George about before coming on, and it's going to be the battle line in Keyforge. So uh, I assume most of our listeners will be familiar with the battle line. You've probably played Keyforge a couple times, uh, either a lot or maybe just a few times if you're listening. But as a basic recap, the battle line is you, you place your creatures in a line as you play them in, in Keyforge, and typically you will play them on either flank and so your creatures have neighbors to each other there are effects that uh, uh you know there are effects that uh focus on flank or non-flank creatures neighbors of creatures in all sorts of ways so uh, we're going to dive into this topic uh, a bit with george today just about uh how it's dynamic what things do we consider when we're looking at the battle line when we're building a battle line uh mostly dependent on uh, what kind of cards are in our deck that are going to interact with the battle line. Now, I will have to say I'm not trained enough on card games to know how many other games have had a battle line uh, really be important in this way. But I definitely appreciate it as, um, you know, a little bit of uh, an, a little extra layer of strategy inside of Keyforge to have neighbors to have neighbors matter, especially as we've gotten more sets and that positioning has mattered more and more. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Runeterra does a little bit with kind of like the left to right attackers thing, but it's not so much... Mm your board state left to right matters as much. Um, Keyforge, I don't know. Again, it's unique. I've played a lot of card games, but I don't know if that aspect of it is unique, but it's certainly, I feel more important 
than a lot of players realize at first. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So in what ways does it kind of become more important or when does it become more important than than one might assume? I know in Call of the Archons, I was just kind of playing things. The only thing I was worried about was taunt in Call of the Archons. So what makes it more important than just, uh, you know, I got to get this whole house out of my hand? <laughs> well, that, that's the first level of it. You have your uh, your taunt effects. You have things like deploy you have uh, like Titan mechanic, which is if it's on a flank, then your keys cost less, well, one less. Uh, Valder, which can attack things on flank. Um, so I really think the most obvious thing that players see when thinking about the battle line matters is the cards that directly call it out, like the pain packas um, and your taunt and your deploy effects. So part of that is not just recognizing those cards, but then also recognizing which cards you would want to put next to those cards. So the taunt is probably the big, most obvious one, right? You want to put your taunt guy um, next to your, maybe your vulnerable creature so that they can be protected by the taunt effect and can't be directly attacked as much. So, George, what kind of uh, what kind of cards in your deck uh, make that battle line placement matter? We talked about taunt, kind of an entry level one, but what are some other effects on maybe some particular creatures or cards that make battle line placement uh, actually important that that come to mind when you think about all this? So, when I think about it, I'm typically actually thinking about my opponent's cards more than my own cards. Um, there are, I think, newer effects like. Excuse me, I don't remember the name. There's an untamed card in Mass Mutation that's kind of like Positron Bolt, but it puts plus one counters, where it does three, two, one from a flank. Mm, Growth Surge. Growth Surge. So that's the type of thing that you can put your smaller creatures on a flank and then beef them up pretty quickly. Otherwise, I'm thinking, like, does my opponent have a booby trap or... um, the untamed card there everywhere, which does two to the flank and one to everything else. And typically I'm organizing my battle line defensively to make my opponent use their cards less efficiently. If they want to remove my troublesome creatures, um, your, your restoring Guntus is something you really want to protect and where it is in your battle line can matter quite a big deal, whether or not it gets actually removed. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point about make protecting the creatures you need to protect by knowing how the threats from your opponent's deck work. One of my favorites in that category of offensive cards to watch out for and build your battle line around if you can is uh, the uh, the the um, I'm tempted to say the only good uh, Brobnar card in Worlds Kali Berserker Slam that deals four damage to a creature. If it kills it, that the controller of that creature loses an amber and it gives you an amber, so it's a nice little two amber swing with a four damage to a flank. And so um, if you're really conscious and you have the right creatures, you can try to avoid the situation where the Berserker Slam really gets a full value. Absolutely. So, Sorry, go the ahead. The only good card, the only good <laughs> Robnar card. I said I hesitate to the, say this, but I, I will admit I did still say it. What about my boy Meganarp? <laughs> Uh, Megan Narp is just so handsome and great at dinner conversation. However, as a card, I mean, I mean, he's fine. He's well, fine. If you if you turn him up the other way around and reverse him, then he's. 
<laughs> your his neighbors can only reap. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that that brings up a good point, though, is that you can. Um, one of the topics I wanted to touch on is that you can affect your opponent's delta and essentially change their plays on their turn by altering their battle lines. And Meganarp is a great example. If anyone is actually playing a Megan, a Meganarp, sure. <laughs> I feel like nobody likes them, but if your opponent has creatures that give a big reap bonus, like maybe it's a reap steal one or reap capture one or something like that. You can take out the creatures in the middle and get that creature next to Meganarp, um, which might actually change their game plan, especially if you're on check or something else, they have to do something different or maybe they have to kill their own Meganarp somehow. Yeah. Killing one's own Meganarp is a bit of a, a bit of a task, a bit of a task. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned, and I think defining this term is going to be really good for this discussion, but you mentioned the, the Delta there, which I know I first heard on uh, the bouncing now archived uh, bouncing death quark. So what, what do you mean by Delta in respect to like battle lines and Amber? So Delta is typically how much Amber can your opponent or yourself produce in a given turn. Um, and they often use the example where if your opponent has three creatures of the same house, they can make three amber. But if they have three creatures and they're all different houses, they can only make one amber. Um, and the common, the first thing a lot of players learn is, you know, cards in hand plus abilities on the board. And by adjusting the opponent's battle line, you can change that number to where maybe they don't have as much on the board now. So they actually, their cards plus board might be a different house and that might benefit you in a different way. For like the obvious one is shadows, right? You don't want your opponent to call shadows on a specific given turn. So like what's a Gamgee, if they have a Gamgee and a NARP and you are able to kill the thing in between the Gamgee and the NARP, if they call shadows, they're going to be able to steal one less. Um, and that's just the example that I come off the top of my head, but every game is different and looking at the, the battle line in that type of way might be, might allow you to make stronger plays. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And even, even without a, a mega narp on the other side of the board, I think something you said there really still stands is that if you know, there's a house that. Uh, they are likely to call or you don't want them to call that house because you know they have some threats there, maybe some answers that they might play. You can disincentivize playing that house by getting rid of creatures, even if you know they're going to call that house. Maybe you focus on taking out creatures of that house so that they have uh, fewer resources. Like you said, you reduce their delta uh, for when they go back into that house or maybe they, they pick another house entirely and, and skip the advantage they were going to get anyways. Exactly. And you can also use that in, I'll say, a defensive way. So there's a lot of um, conditional removal in Keyforge because it's all free, right? You just call a house and you play it. So I'll use the Rustering Guns as example because it's the most uh, close, the closest to home for me. Um, let's say... I have something with taunt on the board and I can put a restaurant contest next to it. I can use the extra defense of the battle line positioning to make my opponent call a 
even a more specific house than what I locked them out of with Restring Guntis. So maybe my opponent has like Shadows, which has a lot of cards that are able to remove a Restring Guntis by doing a little bit of damage or whatever and completely avoid fighting. And they have Brabnar, but they don't have as much removal in Brabnar. Maybe I saw that because it's an Archon tournament, right? So I put it next to a taunt person to where they have to call Brabnar, fight down the taunt thing first, which will take out a lot of their creatures. And then maybe they even still kill the Restring Guntis, but it costs them a turn and a lot of their battle line to do it, putting them farther behind. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great way to think about the battle line as a tool, both yours and your opponents, for how how can I make them spend more resources that I'm spending to to threaten? Like, if I play this one card smartly, I can get them to take a turn, use a couple of creatures to fight instead of reap, and even if they're going to kill that Restoring Guntis, uh, maybe you're getting kind of an advantage out of that, that turn they're spending killing it that you wouldn't have gotten uh, otherwise, which I think is, uh, uh, there's a lot of smart plays in that area. Yeah, exactly. And you can use, it's not just Rustering Guntis. You can use your Pampacas this way. Um, you can use Hazardous this way, uh, where you just set up, use your battle line left to right in your flanks to dodge your opponent's removal and force them to waste cards that are, use their cards less efficiently because it is a race. So using making their cards less efficient essentially slows them down, puts you ahead in the race. It's almost like a game within the game, uh, working out where to put things on the battle line and and whether you're making the best use of it at the time, particularly with the effects that we've had introduced, I think, in later sets. It's it's like a like a little puzzle within Keyforge. It is. And and, and it is a a smaller aspect that can have a big difference. Um, oftentimes in card games, it's, they say it's like a game of percentages. What, what choice can give you one more percent to win or two more percent to win? Um, and the battle line is often the place I see my opponents giving up free percentages because they just, they Mm. didn't, they just slammed all their creatures down. They didn't care that they put, you know, like they lined up to a positron bolt exactly to where I killed three creatures with one card, you know, versus if they would have just placed them in the opposite direction, I might only got one or two creatures. Um, so I think that's a, a great lesson to kind of have a plan, a defensive plan, right? After reading your opponent's Archon card, if you if you can, in an Archon environment and knowing, OK, here's the threats they're going to have. You know, they've got a bullet eye or a Chimor Eclipse. Um you know, something like that uh, to to kind of play around. Positron Bolt is a great practical example because that does the three, two, one damage. Um, but uh, depending on your deck, you're also going to have some cards that uh, you want to kind of play to your outs. You know, if you've got a Ghost Talk or an Order of Hissario, um, you might want to set up your battle line for as well. Are there any of kind of your favorite cards, George, that you kind of have to set up for like in your own deck as far as a battle line order goes? There are, and we'll get into that with next week's episode, likely with the deck I want to review. But sometimes it's not as obvious and it's the card effects that control it that even don't even say flank or non-flank or anything like that. But generally the what am I like my favorite cards that matter? I really like the Pampacas. Anything with Taunt, I love Taunt and Hazardous uh, as defense cards. Even though I don't like Sanctum, 
it's uh, one of my least favorite houses. I do like some of the abilities that they give. And the last thing I wanted to, maybe not, maybe not the last thing, but something I wanted to bring up was that, so if you know your, your cards that have the battle line matters abilities, your deploys, like you just said, Ghost Hawk or uh, Orator Hasaro, you can change your gameplay if you know your deck well enough, like call the certain house to build up your battle line ahead of time to draw into your outs so that like if you have a ghost hawk and a gamgee you can do your shadows turn set it up um and then maybe they think they're free to do whatever and then you slam a ghost hawk and you reap and you steal or anything like that so i think the last level of really getting to know your deck and really getting to know your battle line is setting it up ahead of time and building the best possible board state that you can with that which also, to like to bring it all together, that changes if you're at an Archon event where all the sets are legal or you're at a sealed event where only a one set is legal, it benefits to learn all the cards that care about um, the battle. What was the, what was the Brobnar example you said? Uh, Berserker Slam. Berserker Slam. So like if you're doing a Worlds Collide sealed event and your opponent has a, like, a Brobnar deck, you can't actually look at their list, but you can know they might have a Berserker Slam, especially if they picked Brobnar and Worlds Collide. They might have some, you know, something up their sleeve, which might be a handful of Berserker Slams. And you can plan accordingly ahead of time before it even becomes a problem. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Uh, one of my I'll shout out one of my favorite cards here that makes that um, really pulls together a lot of this thinking is uh, the think tanks, especially the. Uh, regular just group think tank that has action <laughs> deal four damage to every creature that shares a house with at least one of its neighbors. Because I've noticed with that, that if you can get out your think tank and minimize damage to your own battle line, if you manage to clear your opponent's battle line, all of a sudden, if they play more than one creature in a turn, those, those creatures will get hit by um by group think tank which i just think is uh that card has grown on me the more i've played with it i think that's a very difficult card to use and you that's a great example that is a that's a very good example of how even if you just take out the specific creatures ahead of time and then you slam that thing they have to answer it or they're just going to have their board state wrecked every single turn great example (laughs) And then, of course, we have the leaders, uh, something to be aware of both on your side of the board and your opponents. George, which of, which of the leaders do you think could be truly influential or could we see in some of those truly uh, truly outstanding Archon decks? My favorite is Zenzi, 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 Zenzik. Um, those effects have continued to be very strong. The Dis one, where you can steal your opponent's creatures, I think is also very good. But... Generally, I think the creatures that have an ability immediately, which Zenzi does, are tend to be the better ones. Ancient Bear has not been so great for me. And and congratulations, George, for the potentially best pronunciation of uh, Zenzi 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 <laughs> on the podcast that we've had so far. Awesome. And uh, we have uh, a few questions uh, from uh, our our patrons. We got a couple of questions from. SC Steel, 
uh, about the battle line. Some of these touch on touch on a few kind of concepts we've hit on earlier, uh, and they're also very general, right? The um, we know Keyforge. Uh, the answer is often it depends, right, with your matchup. Um, but uh, one of her questions was uh, at what delta of creatures? There's that word delta again. Uh, at what delta of creatures do you play a board wipe? Now, this is assuming, of course, you have one and maybe you're holding it for for maximum value. Um, but yeah, Georgia, what kind of delta of creatures do you, if you're holding a board wipe, do you wait for to, to drop that? I think it's not a particular delta. It's whether or not you are in control of the game. Um, your opponent might only have three creatures, but if those three creatures are completely wrecking you and stopping you from doing anything, then you might just need to pull the trigger on that board wipe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I, I think... I think that's right. There's just so many factors that um, sometimes I have held board wipes if I think my opponent is going to play some more creatures. But of course, it is that balance between what value would gain to get between between now and then as well, or or playing to the the conditions of your board wipe. Maybe you want to get some damage on your Brabnar creatures before that's playing true. a coward's end. Yeah, I, w- I would say if it's a conditional delta, but if you think that you can't at least match. Because it is a race. So if you can't mm. add the Delta within the one or two next turns, then you should probably pull pull that trigger on that board wipe. That is a great thing to ask yourself. Can I match? Yeah. Can I match the Delta? If not, then I go ahead and reset the board because then we're both at probably Delta zero, you know, accepting wards and other protections and things. But yeah, that's a great that's a great way to look at it. And we talked about this before. Uh, she asks, what cards are you looking for on an opponent's deck list that affect flank, non-flank? When I'm looking at whether or not the... If I'm looking at a, an opponent's Archon's card, I'm looking for cards that um, remove flank creatures that are not creatures. So there's Valder that attacks flank creatures. That's fine. There's uh, the Sanctum... I would like the sanctum creatures always mess me up because they all sound like angels and they all have like army titles with them. Right. Uh, (laughs) I'm kind of getting sidetracked. I'm not looking for those things. I'm looking more for like the berserker slams, the, um, the booby traps, the, okay. Special delivery, uh, is the one that I'm always on the lookout for because I don't want my restaurant contest getting purged, but essentially the thing I'm always looking for is the removal that can take out your flank creatures particularly. Um, and then the opposite of that is the removal that only hits non-flank creatures like Hand of Dis is a big one. If your opponent has even multiple Hands of Dis, then you need to put your valuable creatures on the flank like maximum as possible just to do the most damage to the opponent. And then on the opposite side, the ones that I like the most are Titan Mechanics, even though... I feel like those are difficult to use sometimes. Um, Staunch Knights, the Pampacas, I like quite a bit. Um, Those things can get out of control with just a heavy board controlling the game. And that walks very well into our final Patreon question, which is indeed on the Pampacas. Everyone's favorite cards, of course. Um, And which of the Pampacas do you think is the, the... biggest kill on site Pampaka. which one do you want to get rid of the most if your opponent brings it oh, up that's i was wondering if the question was going to be like which one is better 
but that's even a better way to pose that question. Yeah, yeah. I, I gotta still say the the plus two Pampeka. So mm, Pampeka Anga. <laughs> that's such a better question than what I expected. The plus two is gonna make it more difficult to kill anything else. So if you're gonna like have to kill one of them, it's gonna be that one because then you can take out the other things you need to take out. Um, skirmish is obviously gonna wreck your board state, but like if they have a like a plus two and then like some other kind of bonus power that that board state's going to get out of hand. And then if you don't have a board wipe, you're probably just going to end up losing after that. Pampaka Inca is the answer to that one. Excellent. Excellent. If anybody needs my trick for how I remember which is which, uh, well, step one, watch the entirety of Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, step two, remember that the main character, Ang is powerful. And step three, Pampaka Anga gives plus two power. So that's my trick. <laughs> It's a good trick. It's it's awfully convoluted, but it, it works. It honestly works. Thanks so much, George, for joining us today for a chat all about the battle line on Keyforge. And that is the episode for today. Thank you so much for joining us here on Keyforge Public Radio. A special shout out, as always, to our Airwave Advocate level supporters on Patreon, like Paul Roadrunner. Of course, you can check everything out on the website, KeyForgePublicRadio.com, all the old episodes, lots of blogs, the merch shop as well. The Patreon and the merch shop are how the show uh, gets support so that we can keep going and delivering this kind of KeyForge content to you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next Wednesday. Visit KeyForgePublicRadio.com to find all of our episodes, transcripts, blog posts, the KPR store, and more. Keyforge Public Radio is made possible with support from listeners just like you who believe in this game and this show. When you join the Patreon, you receive access to votes on content, sneak peeks, early knowledge of interviews, access to the Discord, and other benefits. So come on down, I'd be honored if you joined us. Follow KPR on any social media platform you frequent. Just search for Keyforge Public Radio, and we're probably there. This show is produced by Rooster High Productions, which is me. And remember, dear listener, the most important part of Keyforge is the person across the table. <laughs>